0: I, which, are, which is the good weed, and which is the bad? <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't resist. Although that picture, it almost looks like the uh, coming of the Judgment Day. Gray skies, winds blowing, surf surfing. But thanks to uh, Andy and Phil and <coughs> Whoops and Vicky, I didn't know you could sing a parable. It's a good thing I didn't know it before now, or maybe I would have tried it. But last week, Bruce spoke on the parable of the sower, the first of eight parables that are in Matthew chapter thirteen. And this week I'm speaking on the parable of the weeds. The next parable in the chapter. The next parable in the chapter that we have after the sower is indeed the parable of the weeds. But it's the first one in this chapter in which Matthew records Jesus using a simile within his parable. The kingdom of heaven is like. Is how it started. Since it is the first to do so, I want to just spend a couple minutes looking at the simile, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, Matthew records most of the parables that Jesus spoke about, in which Jesus starts off the parable with the kingdom of heaven is like. The other two synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke, record a couple of Jesus's parables in which he uses this simile. But they record Jesus as introducing them slightly different. They record them as Jesus starting the parable, the kingdom of God is like, versus the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, what's the difference between the two? They're the same parables. So why do two gospel writers record them one way, and Matthew record them another way? Well, the difference is not theological It's not a mistake. But rather it's more to whom the audience these gospel writers are writing to. You see, Mark was writing to predominantly a Roman audience. Luke was writing to a more broader Gentile audience. But Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. And it would make sense for Matthew to tailor what he wrote to that audience. He didn't want to take them off. He didn't want to turn them off before he even started introducing this person, Jesus Christ. So he wrote in such a way that they would have appreciated and felt comfortable with. You see, the Jewish people at that time not only had a very real reverence for God, but they also had a fear for God. Not necessarily of Him, but for God. And in doing so, when they wrote, when they spoke they would not speak or write the word Yahweh or God, but instead they would substitute Adonai or Lord. They did this not only to show the reverence for God, but it also prevented them from accidentally breaking that third commandment. Do not use God's name in vain. See, if you don't say it or write it, you can't accidentally use it in vain. Now this was not a command from God, but more of a tradition amongst the Jewish people. So that explains kind of the apparent discrepancy between the different gospel writers. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, they're actually describing the same thing. And we're going to get into that in a few minutes. What exactly is this kingdom of heaven? Well, let's start off with looking at the parable itself. And that's found in Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 24. And it reads, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. The story is pretty straightforward. You got a landowner who plants a field and along comes somebody who really doesn't like him. And he plants weeds unbeknownst to everybody else and he slips away unseen. He was out to sabotage the crop. And by the time it's noticed what had happened, it was too late to do anything until the harvest. When I spoke on an introduction to the parable, some of you may remember this definition that I presented of what a parable is by a theologian named C.H. Dodd. I've always liked this when I first read it. And so I put it up here again so we can remember what exactly is a parable. A parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. In this case, we have a simile drawn from common life amongst the Israelites at that time. A landowner who planted a crop, a crop of wheat, and not unlike the parable of the sower we learned about last week. But that's about where the similarities end when we look at this uh, parable. You see, unlike last week's parable, someone who is an enemy of the landowner comes along and seeds weeds among the wheat and disappears without being noticed. Now there is a, a noxious weed in the Middle East called darno, also known as bearded darno. The unique thing about this weed is that as it grows, it looks exactly like wheat until the heads of grain come out. When they're in their early growing stages and they're simply looking like grass, they look a lot alike and it's almost impossible to tell them apart. It's not until the grain heads appear that you can tell them apart. And in this picture, the uh, darnel is on the left and the wheat is on the right. And in this parable, that's when the servants would have noticed the difference already. But by that time, the roots are well established on both plants, and they're intertwined, intermingled with each other under the ground. And you start pulling up one, and you're going to at least damage, if not pull up, the good crop with it. Now, anyone listening to Jesus as he told this parable would have had probably this weed in mind. And certainly any farmers listening would have probably nodding their heads in agreement with just how obnoxious this noxious weed was if it gets into their crops. Even if those hearing Jesus' parable did not understand the heavenly meaning, they would have certainly understood the earthly implications of the grain as the, the uh, grain in the darno can be poisonous. It's better to let the crop ripen and separate the two at harvest than it would be to try and separate them growing season. But Jesus was doing more than just telling a farming story. The vividness or strangeness of the story left the disciples' mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease them into active thought, and they asked Jesus to explain this parable. Now, as I started preparing for this message, and I saw that not only do I have a parable to speak on, but I've also got... Jesus' answer to that parable and i thought i got this made this is going to be easy i could put my feet on the desk after a little while and i've got a sermon all ready to go but just as it is with a lot that we read in the bible jesus answers the questions but new questions come to mind and those i struggled with but let's take a look at Jesus' explanation of this parable to his disciples Continuing on in Matthew chapter 13 at verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The devil. So here's the explanation of the parable. Jesus explained that, well, he is the landowner. He is also the one who planted the crop. See, I grew up on a farm, and by the time I was in my late teens, I had operated every single piece of equipment on that farm except for one, the planting equipment. That was my father's job. That was my father's responsibility. He took that seriously. He calibrated that equipment before the start of the planting season, and he was the one who planted the crop. That's what it meant to him. I operated the equipment to prepare the field, to till the soil, to fertilize the crop once it had uh, um, sprouted, and I operated every piece of equipment to harvest the crop. But to cl- plant the crop was my father's responsibility in his field. Now here's where we get into what the kingdom of heaven is. Jesus Jesus explains that the kingdom of heaven is the world. You see, we're not talking about the upper heaven, if you want to call it that. The heavenly heaven where Jesus now resides, seated at the right hand of his Father. Jesus was talking about his kingdom here on this earth which we are still a part of right now. Matthew recorded Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is like. Mark and Luke record Jesus starting other parables as the kingdom of God is like. This world that we live in is God's kingdom, established by God and ruled by God, but all is not well in this kingdom. Now some have interpreted the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom here on this earth, as being only the church. But I think it makes more sense to take the more literal look that the kingdom Jesus was talking about is the entire world, of which the church is a part of that we're in today. Some have also um, looked at this parable as, as being more predominantly towards church discipline. and though the Bible does have verses and teachings about church discipline. Again, I think this is more about the world in a broader sense than just specifically looking at the church. Satan is loose on this world and is trying his best to destroy what Jesus has planted. And he's using everything in his arsenal to do so. We're taught in the Bible that Satan is crafty, he's powerful, and he has an army at his disposal. But as powerful as he is, he's no match for God. And his harvesting angel, that is God's, Harvesting angels at the time of judgment will come down and they will not be stopped. And that's what this parable does. It's prophetic literature about a future day of judgment that will come without warning and with dire consequences for those who are on the wrong side of the scale. Within this group of parables that we have here in Matthew chapter 13, we have two basic categories. We have the parable of the sower and others like it, which talk about the growth of the church in the age that we're in. But there are two parables within Matthew chapter 13, of which the parable of the weeds is one, which talks about a future judgment. And Jesus makes it absolutely clear who will be harvesting the crop that day. He has a group of angels just waiting for the command to start the harvest. On that day, the harvest will be swift. It will be complete. There will be no stock of darnel left standing, nowhere to hide, nowhere to run. The outcome of each group will be predictable. The wheat, or the sons of the kingdom, will be gathered before the king and will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. It paints a beautiful picture. beautiful picture of golden wheat waving in the sun as the breeze blows across it. If you believe Jesus Christ is God's Son and in a spirit of repentance have given your life to Him, you too will be a part of that crop shining in the sun in the presence of your Father. We can find further proof of that in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 15 to 17. For you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit <clears throat> that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. What a wonderful picture that paints for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. We're heirs. We're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We're going to suffer, but we're going to also bask in the glory of the Son in the presence of His Father. Now, the outcome for those who cause sin and who do evil is indeed bleak. They will be thrown into the fiery furnace, and it's important that we don't gloss over this. I once heard a sermon where the preacher stated he wished that we could all be dangled, over hell for just five minutes so we could see what we're saved from. That indeed would put it into a lot of perspective for all of us as Christians. Jesus described that for those who are thrown into such a furnace, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping indicates great sorrow. Gnashing of teeth indicates great pain. Have you ever seen somebody or have you ever been in pain that was so great that your teeth are clenched to try and bear that pain? Well, that's what it'll be like for those on that day of judgment. Though the sentence will come quick, the duration will be long. It'll be eternal. It'll be hard and it will be without ending. Something I want to make clear about this parable is that this parable does not parallel the harvest that Jesus described in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus was sending out his disciples on a mission trip. And it reads, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Here Jesus is describing a harvest of salvation. In the parable of the weeds, Jesus is describing a harvest of judgment. And we have to be sure not to confuse the two or try and intertwine them. They're completely two separate harvests. Now, earlier... I stated how I thought I had it made when I got this parable because Jesus was giving me all the answers. Well, there were some questions that came up as I read and reread this parable and studied it. Two questions in particular were intriguing and challenging. The first one is, who are the servants? And the second one is, what are we to do with regard to evil? until this final judgment comes to pass. In the first question, who are the servants? Well, Jesus describes all of the players in this parable, except for this group. He doesn't say who the servants are. And as I thought about it, I thought, well, we're described as being servants. Are we the servants? But then I thought, we can't be the wheat and the servants at the same time. So I kind of ruled out that explanation. I believe it's very possible, perhaps even probable, that the servants Jesus was talking about are another group of angels. Not the group of angels who are set aside for the harvest, but other angels who are his servants. The ones who spotted all the darnell amongst his kingdom here on earth. Or another possibility, possibly even a probability, is those servants actually don't have an upper story equivalent. See, not everything in a parable has to have a heavenly meaning to it. It could simply be that in the common day, everyday life story that Jesus was telling, it's the servants who would be out in the fields, working after the crop is planted, and they would have noticed this. But Jesus never really meant for it to have a heavenly meaning. So I don't have a definitive answer, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But those are some possibilities that I think carry some very good uh, possibilities with them. Now the other question. What are we to do about evil in this world until the day of final judgment comes? Even though we're not of the world, we're still in it. We still have a part to play. Well, let's take a look at a couple of verses that I think does shed some light on our roles and responsibility. Earlier in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So we are to love. We are to pray. But it doesn't end there. In Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, it reads, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now I think these verses paint a picture for us of what our role is in battling evil. We are to pray, for those who are considered our enemies we are to love them we have to understand that evil exists in this world because God allows it evil has not overcome God but for a period of time in God's plan evil will exist amongst us why he allows evil to exist that's a whole series of sermons and I'm not going down that road today But in our opposition to evil, we have to make sure that we are not using evil ourselves to overcome evil. See, Paul, in addressing the Romans, he stated that uh, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There are times in the world's history when that's not possible. There are times when powers of evil are so strong that opposition even from Christians, has to be a part of the everyday world. But during our opposition to evil, we are warned not to be vengeful. That's what the people of the world, and I see this in a lot of movies or entertainment shows that you start to see more and more as time progresses, the heroes are cheered on for getting their revenge on somebody who's wronged them. But that's not our role. That's not our responsibility. As part of the Beatitudes, Jesus stated, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. There was a time in history, just after the Second World War, 1948, in the spring of May. When Second World War ended, Germany, or the control of Germany, Germany, the responsibility for Germany had been divided up amongst the allies who composed of Great Britain, the U.S., France, and Canada was a part of that, and the Soviet Union. Within there was the city of Germany. Germany was split in half. Half was under the control of the allies, half under the control of the Soviet Union. The problem was the area around Berlin was completely controlled by the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union wanted all of Berlin as well. And so they began a blockade of road and rail to prevent any food, supplies, fuel from being shipped into Western Germany and to the German people there. Before this happened though, at the end of the war, two air corridors had been agreed upon between the two controlling groups so that um, air traffic and travel safely from the Allies' side into Berlin. And the Soviet Unions could not, without starting another war, oppose that. Now the supplies were starting to get low for those in West Germany, or in West Berlin. And the Allies came up with a plan. And it was called the Great Berlin Airlift. And it happened starting in June of 1948. It went on for 15 months. And within that time... 280,000 flights were made into the city of West Berlin. West, West Berlin and all of Berlin, for that matter, was all but obliterated at the end of the Second World War. It was bombed so heavily. And they were still trying to rebuild. But they were also just trying to survive. Now, here you have the Allies who just three years earlier were bitter enemies with the Nazi regime and the people of Germany and they were fighting in a war for which some wondered if there would be an end. But the Allies had 280,000 mercy flights, bringing food, bringing drink, milk, coal in the wintertime, all for a people who were once considered their enemies. Here's the example that we need to look to as well. We need to look to that example that we need to love those who are considered our enemies. We need to feed those who are considered our enemies. We need to clothe those who are considered our enemies. We can't show God's love unless we love our enemies. We were all once enemies of God before any of you accepted Christ as your Savior. We were all his enemies, but God loved us so much so that he clothed us in majesty. He feeds us the bread of life. He gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. With regards to what our role will be during the harvest of judgment, when this period ends, we're simply spectators in all of this. God has His angels set aside, ready to sweep down and harvest the good, and destroy the bad. But we need to be aware. Uh, a few weeks ago, Steve Osava spoke on one of the parables, and his theme that I took away from it was be prepared. I'm simply presenting today that we need to be aware of what's going to happen. And in being aware, we are to warn those around us. We are to warn those around us, of what is coming, and we do this knowing full well that some will listen, some will not listen, and some will be the darnal, the evil ones, those who cause evil. But before we can do any of this, we have to examine our own root system. And I want to close with I guess the encouragement. It's not a warning, but it's an encouragement for all of us to examine. Our own root systems. Are we really, is it really possible for us to be doing what God calls us to do? We have a a farming parable. I wore my farming sweater. My mom made this for me. Some of you people in the mining community think it's a train, but it's a tractor. It's my tractor sweater. I dress like a farmer. I look like a farmer. I grew up on a farm. I know how to talk farm. I know how to work a farm. I know how to serve on the farm. Does that make me a farmer? That's the question we have to examine amongst ourselves. Even if we can say, yes, we are the farmer, we also have to continually examine ourselves. Are we doing what a farmer is supposed to do? My answer to that question, am I a farmer? No, I'm not. As much as I loved growing up on the farm and being a part of that experience, I'm not a farmer. I don't have the passion for that soil that my father had. I don't have the commitment to that crop the way my father had. For me, it was work. For him, it was his life. That's what we have to examine. What is our root system telling us? Do we have that compassion for Jesus Christ? Do we have the commitment to Jesus Christ? Are we Christians or are we just playing Christians? It'll come out in the end. But before that happens, you need to really examine it. I need to really examine myself. Well, our musical team has a closing song, so I'll invite them back up with that. And after which, I'll close our meeting off in prayer. our Heavenly Father, oh how wonderful it is to know that we can be called your children, your sons and daughters, the most living high God, the one who created, the one who spoke into creation, everything that is seen and unseen. For by you we have breath, by you we are sustained, and by you someday for those who call you Lord and Savior we will see you face to face. We will be able to bow down, worship you, and in person cry out, Abba, Father, to you. And you will respond with joyful, you will respond respond with wonderful love and affection back towards us. For you have loved us, and because you have loved us first, we ourselves can love And I pray that we would take to heart the... uh, lessons and the messages that are taught in your word, that we would love those around us, even those that we consider unlovable, that we would look to you as our example of what it means to have that sacrificial love in our lives. And we pray that on that day when your judgment rains down, we pray that we will not have been found wanting, that we will not have shirked our responsibility to warn those before that day. I pray, Lord, that we would all be gathered together on that day and we too would shine in the sun. Shine in the sun with our Lord Jesus Christ and that we would shine in the sun in the full glory of your holiness. Be with us as we leave this building, as we go our separate ways and carry out the activities of this week that are planned for us. May we all come back Next Sunday, refresh, alive for you, and enthusiastic about being your servant. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen. I from